my name is Ember Kelly, and I'm the Director of Religious Education here at Fourth Universalist Society in the city of New York. Uh, and we are really excited for tonight's event. It is the second in our Pop Culture and Theology series uh, in January. Uh, Colin Wolf and I sat down to talk about the uh, Legend of Zelda. And now this month, the Reverend Skylar Vogel and I will be sitting down to talk about the theology and be a little bit nerdy about the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and we're pretty excited to get to discuss some of these deeper meanings. We've got a, a great bit of uh, guiding conversation, but we're definitely going to just be kind of flowing with, with the direction that things head. And if you have any questions, feel free to either write them down, put them into the chat. However, we're planning that that'll probably come about, I was going to say 6.45, but uh, 7.45, uh, about 45 minutes in, uh, we will start uh, fielding questions from the chat box. Uh, so just uh, if you have an urgent question, let us know in the chat and uh, or save it till then. Um, but since we are at 7.01, I'm going to hand it over to the Reverend Skylar Vogel to do a little talking about what is the Lord of the Rings in case maybe you are coming here just for a good conversation and know nothing about Lord of the Rings. So welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're glad you're here to talk about Lord of the Rings. I know Ember and I and Colin have been reading up on Lord of the Rings this last week, and uh, it's certainly one of uh, my favorite series. It was my uh, escapist uh, reading for the summer, uh, why I blew through the, the, the three uh, main books, The Hobbit, Silmarillion, and parts of uh, The Lost Tales, um, as well as Children of Huron. So there's a lot of different information out there uh, and a lot of great reading for Lord of the Rings. But if you... Um, but to, to share kind of the overview of it, um, you know, this is a, it's a fantasy series that was written, um, you know, roughly in the, uh, the first half of the 20th century by a guy named J.R. Tolkien, who uh, was an English professor of linguistics um, at Oxford. And, and he, his life was notable for a lot of reasons. He, you know, was formed uh, as a young, a young man, um, having been sent to, uh, to war, uh, the First World War, fought the Battle of the Somme, uh, at one point wrote that all but one of his great friends had died. Um, and so he is somebody who was deeply shaped by, by loss and by conflict, um, and also uh, was someone who was deeply interested in, in mythology, in religion. We'll talk more about that uh, as, we, as the, the night goes on. But he started creating these fantasy worlds from a very early, early part of his life, even back when he was a soldier. Uh, in the war where he started creating um, creating these worlds and these narratives and these languages that uh, he would put together. And so in some ways, the, the books that we know that are most famous, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, are in many ways the, the product of decades of work that already happened. Um, and, uh, and so we have them now and we uh, appreciate them. Uh, you know, they were basically published from the, the late 30s through the 1940s. And they're often sort of erroneously attached to World War II, but in fact, they're shaped, the ideas behind them were shaped uh, much earlier than that. Um, a lot of us know them uh, from the modern era, from the movie trilogy that uh, was put together by Peter Jackson and others. And uh, that, of course, re-energized the, these stories that are, that are, of course, classic and timeless in their own way for the uh, next generation and, and for this, this time period. So... Um, that is a basic overview, and we're going to dive into a lot of things about this, about Tolkien himself, about the, the messages that Lord of the Rings has to offer us, 
um, and what it has to do with theology and the idea, way that human beings perceive and understand the world. So, so that is a, a basic 101 of what Tolkien and Lord of the Rings is about. And, you know, there are whole books written about him and this series, but uh, just to get us started with some of that. So, Ember, would you like to start us off with some uh, uh, more in-depth conversation about Tolkien? Definitely. And I'd like to also just let folks know that uh, this part where we are speaking uh, is being recorded. We do have it set to only record speaker views. So if you're watching this in the future on YouTube, we also say uh, hello to you there as well in the future. Hope it's nice there in the future. Um, uh, and so Tolkien, uh, I, I'm, I'm much more of a Midwesterner, I suppose, in my, my pronunciation. You have picked up the proper pronunciation. And I still say Tolkien because it's what all of my friends said growing up. Um, but uh, I mean, he's just this really interesting guy. He is uh, a, himself a, a very, very, uh, I mean, I dare say a hardcore Catholic. I mean, would you, would you agree that that's a fair assessment, Skylar? Yeah, yeah, he was very much being big into being Catholic, and that was a huge part of his identity. Yeah, and not just any Catholicism. This was very Orthodox, very, um, you know, this is pre-Vatican II, so this is very, you know, masses in Latin. This is what was really meaningful for him. He was also good friends uh, with C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia series, was made into slightly less popular movies, uh, and, uh, but is also pretty well known from that same era. Uh, and they, they were close friends and, and C.S. Lewis it was an atheist in original conversations with him and converted to Anglicanism. And I know that, that Tolkien was often uh, a, a bit upset about that. Like, why hadn't he made the full jump to being Catholic? He had some very, very strong personal convictions about, about religion. Uh, and, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, a, a lot of uh, literature that we classified as like Christian literature often has very, very clear allegories. Like in the Chronicles of Narnia series, you have like Aslan, the lion who sacrifices himself, which is very clearly this Jesus type figure. But in uh, the world of the Lord of the Rings in the world of Middle Earth, you have a much broader thing. This is not like, oh, well, here's the very obvious Jesus figure. Uh, so he was really setting about to, to create this proper mythology uh, that he wanted to create. Do you want to, I know you, you, you've you uh, looked into that a little bit, uh, Reverend Schuyler, if you want to maybe touch on like his his hope and dream with like creating a, a big myth. Yeah, so it is it is really, the Lord of the Rings and the whole world of Lord of the Rings, right? It, it's not really just about the rings. Um, if you read the Silmarillion uh, and all the other lore and stories, there there's some Silmarillion. Um, uh, Lord of the Rings is just one part of it. Um, but, but, Tolkien came at this from a from a, an initial desire of of experiencing uh, and loving mythology from um, other parts of Europe. He he loved looking at you know uh, Norse religion and mythology, and and part of him would would read this and and you know he wrote a, a lot about Beowulf as a myth and as a story and loved loved that. Um, and he as as an English person in some ways mourned the fact that there wasn't really much preserved from English lore and mythology pre-Christian, um, that in some ways, even as a Christian himself, he felt that Christianity in England had basically bulldozed these sort of archaic mythologies that other countries had and that were really powerful, that, that in some ways were the seeds of what he understood to be the true religions of, of Christianity. Um, and so he set out, he said, you know, we need to have some kind of lore. Um, and, and so he started out 
with developing the lore of the, of the Lord of the Rings world in order to essentially offer that up to um, to his to his country as as an English person. Um, but it's but it's tricky because he, like Ember said, he wasn't like C.S. Lewis who wanted to be allegorical. He was vehement that he was not trying to like say things about the world. He wasn't trying to be like this person represents this person and, and this is like this guy represents this part of the human nature. Um, he he was really he, could, he would get very upset at people trying to pretend like this was about something that was happening in the real world. Um, uh, though of course I think we can all be kind of aware that like every artist right is inevitably influenced by their world, unconsciously or not. Um, and he actually came to admit that. Um, there's a he was writing to a Jesuit priest once, and he he wrote basically this is the quote: "The Lord of the Rings is of course a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously so at first." but consciously in the revision. So that both points out that, you know, he started it, writing it and, and, and he, he, as he continued to write it and revise it, he realized that, that part of what he created was came out of an unconscious Catholicism um, of his own. Um, also interesting in that quote is that, you know, the revision part is, is important because um, the Lord of the Rings was consistently revised for quite a while after it was initially published. And so the version that we have today that you get in the store is not the same version that, um, that you will see, that you would see if you got the first edition. Part of that is that his world was so complex that there was a lot of inconsistencies, actually. And once people started reading it, they'd be like, well, actually, in this other text, that's not exactly what you had to say. And so he and then later his son... Um, would go back and be like, well, okay, actually, this is what we meant to say. That was just like a revised draft of that that got snuck in. So even even they had trouble kind of keeping things straight. Um, but I think that commitment to the Catholicism of it, uh, you know, um, fit. I mean, he would also write this idea that like, and this is almost kind of you, you in a way, but like the, he said, I don't feel any obligation to make my story fit formalized Christian theology, although I did intend it to be consistent consonant with Christian thought and belief. And so this idea of of not trying to be formulaic about it, not trying to be creedal or doctrinal about it, but having the spirit of it reflect uh, the spirit of Christianity in a way that, that was definitely there in some form. And we'll talk about kind of what that spirit was, right? Like what are the, the Christian messages that come with the stories and the characters uh, and the morality of it. But um, but that Christianity and that Catholicism specifically was was very much embedded in in the roots of the stories, um, as he believed was embedded in all the mythologies of of the world. Um, as a Christian, you know, he sort of saw them as like basically proto religions that that were human beings working out their meaning making and their relationship with gods and the universe, and that Christianity was sort of like the hierarchical next evolutionary stage to those, which was a very which is problematic in a lot of ways, if you kind of think about that in relationship to like, you know, a lot of sort of indigenous traditions and other religious, even you know, Judaism, right? That like Christianity basically was like, well, we figured it out. Thanks for that work, but like we're all on to the we're on to the the enlightened view of what religion is, and Tolkien definitely had that had that view um, and sort of saw mythology in that. Um, but he also didn't dismiss it as sort of irrelevant or. Um, or evil, he saw it as sort of in the roots of the the tree, which is better than some people of his day. You know, you you talked in there about the the revisions, and it couldn't help but make me think of the the most recent text that I've read uh, since returning from from living abroad uh, is the Fall of Gondolin, uh, which is one of the more recently released 
Uh, I wasn't able to get it and find it uh, very easily abroad, but uh, once we were back, I was like, okay, it's time. This is my, this is my, <laughs> oh, I see we got a copy in the giant pile. I too have a pile for those watching. It's just, I don't have a shelf for anywhere to put it near me. <laughs> but one of the interesting things about it, and it kind of threw me off a little bit at first, uh, as I tried to just sit down and enjoy it as a read, is that it's, it's his son chronicling how it was revised also in a sense, like he presents like basically like eight different versions of the same narrative that like his dad had worked on at varying points in his life, but these were all being written before he even had thought of the actual central Lord of the Rings trilogy itself. This was, you know, a whole mythos for uh, the world way before that. It was so drastically different. He, his desire for myth was just, you know, like he didn't want just one story. He wanted it to be this fully uh, populated world um, that, that really um, had its own its, its own meanings. And that's uh, uh, to bust out my, if I'm gonna keep referring to my books, uh, my copy of The Silmarillion um, is uh, actually one of the, I, I read things a little bit out of order in my Lord of the Rings experience. I, as a high schooler, I, <laughs> I, I, I will admit, and don't tell my high school English teachers, uh, I read Fellowship of the Rings for a book report and then I watched the Two Towers movie for a book report uh, because I struggled to get through the book. But then the interesting one, thing was that a friend recommended, hey, have you read The Silmarillion? And I was like, okay, like I'll give it a look. And it fascinated me in a way that The Two Towers didn't, uh, which, is, which is strange because it is this huge lore heavy and like very broad thing, but it was so intriguing and interesting to see all of these threads that he was laying come together. I think that's one of the really like beautiful things when you've when you've explored the wider lore that, that it's this um, this broad stream that he was so desiring to build into this huge myth. It wasn't just okay, well here's the story of these guys in this ring, but it was a whole universe that he was creating much much sooner than the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I would say. <laughs> uh, and one of the interesting things, though, as we prepared for this discussion is we noted that while he may have had his very strong theologies, there's never, you don't ever hear that like the characters are going to church. You don't hear them pray. Uh, it, it seems that there isn't any like plain and obvious religion and theology in the series. Uh, Reverend Skyler, you got any any uh, thoughts with regards to that? Or like why, why was it that he doesn't explicitly say, you know, here they are worshiping the proper Christian God or something like that. Yeah, uh, it's a really interesting question. And, and he was asked that in the interview as well, where there is definitely an awareness based on what the different races, you know, there are elves, there are humans, there are hobbits, there are dwarves and orcs. And, and, and each race that he has, has a certain uh, spirituality um, or a certain orientation or relationship to the world. Um, the elves have a deep awareness of uh, the land beyond the sea, and and that place is, is a sacred place, um, and are probably the most aware of any kind of beings that exist in in the form. You know, the Lord of the Rings series has, and Silmarillion and all those. You know, the world has its own its own mythology that that Tolkien created. Um, there is a creator god. Um, there are essentially angels called the Valar, um, Sauron, and uh, you know, and Gandalf are essentially versions of minor angels that have been 
either sent um, or wind up in Middle Earth um, to do things, right? Gandalf is is sent there to basically check Sauron along with four other wizards who are essentially mini angels um, from the big angels who are are powerful and there's so there are so those exist within the world and so what's interesting is right that like you don't hear Aragorn before a big battle praying to any of those beings even though the elves might be like they exist uh, and the elves have some awareness about that um, but but Tolkien leaves it kind of quiet um, you know there, I think there's a feeling that the dwarves have a have a relationship with their creator god because that was a relationship that was sort of obvious to them but but it is an interesting thing um, that that he kind of leaves it quiet uh, around that. But it's also interesting that he creates this mythology within the within it that uh, that is also not totally aware uh, to the characters themselves. I think a big part of the Lord of the Rings is this sense of separation uh, and loss uh, of the characters from this primordial past that. Um, that in some ways was was wonderful and beautiful. Um, there's all these stories in Silmarillion and other other texts that Tolkien created um, that that go back way before the hobbits appeared and Frodo and Bilbo were bopping around Middle Earth. Um, huge wars, a whole continent, two whole continents were basically destroyed and sunk into the ocean. Um, one of them was uh, very much reminiscent of the the fall of man story from the bible um and so there were these there were the archetypal stories but but a lot of this has been lost in memory um to the character that we have here which is i think poignant um part of what the human experience is right that like we are um you can both be in myth yourself as these characters and also be um, looking back to the past, uh, to all the myth makers before you, and feel small in comparison. There's a there's a part in the movie and in the book where um, the Fellowship is sort of on this river going along, and then there are these two huge statues of the past uh, that are kind of framing the shot. And you look at it, and you just imagine how small they look in comparison, and what mighty you know king or empire created those things. And there they were, this sort of these small rugged people that. The kings of the north had had long ago fallen, you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, the great the great empires of men were falling falling apart. Gondor and Rowan were threatened, and and so the sense of of loss of that those stories in the past and the and the myths was even real then. Um, and so I know we're going to talk about a little bit about how Tolkien's relationship with uh, um, progress and history because that's fascinating too. It's very different than I think Unitarian Universalist progress in history. Um, Ember, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I, I, um, I, I wanted to dive into some really in there, but I think this is also a fascinating direction that, that we can discuss is, you know, t- uh, he definitely had um, this, uh, as someone who grew up in a very Christian worldview, evangelical Christian, he had uh, a very similar worldview that original sin that everything is um everything is corrupted everything is predisposed towards falling apart that they, they're going to have these great empires like you were mentioning but they will fall and there will always be some big threat like sure the original big evil melkor is defeated but then there's sauron and that is defeated in the series but then who someone surely will rise again after you know there's there, there's always he has this view of history um 
that uh, there's a great quote from that he that about about it in uh, America Magazine that um, he subscribes to a Catholic imagination in which the greatest fight is not external but against temptation, and the most alluring temptation in the narrative is the one that must be resisted no matter what's the cost, which is temptation to power. So he he sees this power is corrupting, like there. The kings fall, the kings get corrupted, and uh, the, the two towers, you have um, you have the uh, king who's been corrupted by the advisor who's spreading him lies. And he just has, he has this, this uh, belief that everything uh, is, is bad, that there is an inherent evil in the world that can't be defeated outside of a final uh, battle. And even um, in writing about history, um, he wrote once in a letter that he does not expect history to be anything but a long defeat. Skylar, do you want to talk a little bit about that long defeat? Yeah, so I, I love this line. Um, it's one of my favorite quotes of his from all time, because I really think that a lot of, a lot of, I speak for myself, but I think a lot of people these days really struggle with this idea and, um, and the idea of progress. Certainly, Tolkien comes out of a Christian background, and a lot of Christian theology is pretty clear on what progress is. Um, and Tolkien shared it, and C.S. Lewis shared it, and a lot of these folks shared it, which is that you know, evil is within the world, and evil is going to win in this world. Um, that is a foregone conclusion. Um, things will fall apart. Um, you will have victories, um, and goodness will have victories. But ultimately, we are all... We are all honor bound to fight for victories, but we are all ultimately powerless against them um, and that the true victory will happen beyond this world in some form. Um, you know, that that beginning starts with sort of the the fall, you know, in Christian theology, the, you know, the ap Adam and Eve apple in the garden story, not apple, it's just a fruit, actually. But um, but it's, you know, the idea that original sin is within the world. Satan is there in its very bones. Um, and um and that is uh, that is very real. And so, in the Lord of the Rings, you see this pattern again and again: how corruptible people are. Um, there's a, uh, you know, he talks about in going to mythology. He points at this idea, looking at like the Norse gods, for example. Um, the Norse gods, if you look at their mythology, they are definitely they're different than like the Greek gods, where the Norse gods are clearly supposed to be relatively good like they're on the right side you're supposed to look at them and see them as sort of these people that are on your side are good not always uncomplicated but generally good um but here's a quote that they're on the right side but it is not the side that wins uh, the norse gods are destroyed they're killed um in some ways to make way for all of us um, the winning side is chaos and unreason um but the gods who are defeated think that defeat is not a refutation. And I think that psychology is very different than a lot of how we carry today, which is we assume that if prog that progress needs to win in order for it to be right. Um, you know, and that's part of the despair we feel when it doesn't, when elections go the wrong way or, or people are doing horrible things that somehow, somehow there's shame in, in defeat. Um, but Christianity says that, look, there's nothing we that's always going to happen, right? There's not, there's nothing that we can do about that. Evil is an ever-present force, uh, you know, that sin is everywhere. Uh, it's part of the uh, daily experience that, that we have. And, um, 
you know, it's it's not resonant in one person. It's just around. It's part of human nature. And we see that in the corruptibility of all the characters in Lord of the Rings, even the good ones. Um, you know, Frodo did not succeed in his task. Um, at the end of the, the Lord of the Rings, he got there just like Isildur before him, you know, centuries before, got to Mount Doom and had the ring and said, I'm not going to throw it in, right? He was corrupted, even someone so pure as Frodo. And the hobbits who were who were Tolkien's emblematic, pure, simple person, right? They, he based them off kind of like the, the simple soldier that he experienced in the trenches in World War I, the basic goodness of, of the English people were the hobbits. That, that, that was an allegory that he actually spoke to very directly. But you see that with Frodo. You see Gandalf refusing to even touch the ring because of fear of being, being corrupted by it. Um, you see Boromir, who was noble and also saw that the ring could be used and was corrupted by it. So this idea that even the very best of us ultimately can fall to corruption and really inevitably will fall to corruption, um, but that there is still some great nobility that is possible in each, every single person, and that our work um, is to be on the side of that nobility as best as we can, and uh, that you know the goodness chooses us as their allies, um, and that there's heroicism to be found in resistance to that evil um, and that corruption and that... Um, uh, in those temptations that, that it offers us. And we see that with power today, right? Like the Tolkien talks about the idea that power is such a temptation. And, and, and so clearly we see that in our world these days with you know, the people who sell their souls to be powerful, to get elected, to align with people who have that. Um, and the ring represents that, right? And so people who refuse to to take it on or see it as something that is inherently dangerous is, are, are in some ways very courageous and wise. And then we see people like Bormir who, who believe they can use that power for good and how ultimately that fails them. Um, you can't play with the power of, of, of evil um, or, or the temptations that corrupt and expect not to get, get consumed by them because of the human nature that Tolkien believes from his Catholic background. But I really have to wonder how much of that is also shaped by thinking, I'm thinking about his experience in World War I. Um, he, he in general has also very much a bone to pick with like the industrialization kind of, mm -hmm. kind of progress, like that, that, that uh, uh, Saruman is this, this figure who, who cuts down all the trees and gets rid of nature to, to make way for uh, doing things a mechanical way. Uh, and, and, you know, between that kind of progress and corrupted power, he had seen that so vividly in World War One, like you know, a war that was you know basically uh, more in essence than than anything fought over colonialism, uh, wanting to to who can who can control Europe and who can control the world, uh, and he had seen how all of this can you know lead to such horrible bloodshed and like to to face you know everybody was told before World War One, you know, that we're on such this positive trajectory towards the, the towards history. I suppose we got a little bit of that in the 90s with the end of history talk. Um, so we can kind of <laughs> understand that as well. But it was, you know, very much this idea that we're headed towards, like we're so close to just achieving the best world. And then World War One happened. And it really just threw so much disillusionment into so many people uh, that, you know, they thought that all these machines that were so great uh, for helping improve the world, suddenly these machines are mowing them down in trenches and dropping, you know, biological warfare on on folks like this. It was, it, you know, it was just. Uh, I have to imagine it was a horrible experience that really shaped that that 
idea of good and evil and of power and of progress. Um, I do want to I want to head back to something though that you were talking about because it, it really intrigued me as you were talking about how you know they see these um, these figures and these seem so ancient and old uh, and. So you do have that the human characters and like in the hobbits who are at least semi-human, that they are all much younger. You do have that Aragorn is significantly older because he's of an older race of humans called the Numenorians. That's a whole side conversation we can have in a little bit. Um, but then you do also have that like the elves that they come in contact with, such as Elrond, has literally uh, been alive for thousands of years, who has seen you know more than one rise and fall of of Sauron, uh, that he has, has this ancient memory that in you know his his parental elves and humans and uh, such and such where some of those elves even experienced these major angels. So you have like this whole um, hierarchy. Both you have you have a, a god figure, but then you have you know these 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 major angels, then the minor angels and spirits. One of which ends up becoming Gandalf, as you mentioned. Uh, but then you do have these elves who have like this longer memory, but you know their culture is just so much different than like the hobbits who are just uh, sitting around smoking and drinking and having fun and enjoying life. Um, and so uh, you know it's it's curious to 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 think about you know how the, how these different worlds were interacting between these very different races, and like I always found that intriguing. Thinking you know. Um, we all have this very clear idea of, of what human what it means to be human. I, I don't know if I call that a clear idea, I guess. We all have experience of being human. Um, there, there's, my, there's my better statement. We all have experience of being human. Uh, but he lays out these you know, varying uh, races that are human-esque. They're not like too different from us that they're unfamiliar, but you have you know, these almost somewhat humanly uh, angel figures. You have somewhat, um, uh, humanly spirit figures uh, that even sometimes take the form of humans, uh, such as Gandalf. But then you also then have the elves who live for thousands of years and who sail away. Um, and you have the dwarves who are, you know, dwelling under in the rock and mining. Uh, and then you have the humans and the hobbits. You have so many different races experiencing um, so many different things. Uh, and in the series, it's and in the wider lore, you know, it's it's part of this whole narrative that that the god has created all of this in a, in a song of creation, and everything has actually happened, uh, but that it will um, it is being played out. The song that was sung before creation is now being played out, uh, and and as a teenager and uh, early twenty something, when I was reading this the first few times, I always just found that to be this 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 beautiful. Uh, imagery that like this, that the song that was played of creation uh, and then how it is uh, played out. So, I mean, I, I find his creation mythology and the idea of like different races that are human-esque, but, but like are different enough from us that we're like, well, that's kind of weird to live for a couple thousand years. Uh, so, you know, what, what kind of theological insights do you, do you think of thinking about these, these different races that he's laid out in this mythology? I think, I think Tolkien would have believed that they represent in some ways different aspects of the human experience, that they um, were different ways that we engage with each other in the world. I think, I think he was, 
in some ways most fascinated by the elves and enjoyed writing about the elves the most. Um, and, and you see that in his many works of them, whether it's the fall of Gondolin um, uh, to uh, uh, Luthien and Baron, um, the epic poem, that there's, there's a really a desire to, to live in that world. And in some ways, the, you know, the human beings, I mean, the men, as he calls them, uh, uh, appeared really late. And, um, and in some ways, their story is always kind of the second act to the, to the elves, um, although that changes uh, as they kind of appear and, and grow and become eventually a sort of a threat in some degree to the elves. Um, and, and we're asked to, I think, sympathize with, with the elves, but also see ourselves in, in, in human beings and also into the hobbits um, specifically. Um, it's not, I think it's interesting how, how Tolkien plays off the, the humans and, and the, the hobbits in the Lord of the Rings, because in some ways they're both of us, um, that the, the humans are obviously people just like us, but also there, there's a grandness to them that a lot of us don't necessarily live up to. And like you were saying, the, the Numenorians were a special kind of people. Um, they were mixed with elves, you know, many, many, many years ago, thousands of years ago, and they actually had their own kingdom. Um, but this is more about this is more Lord of the Rings uh, theology, or I guess history or lore. But but the big difference, of course, between the elves and, the, and and humans is that elves live forever, and human beings do not. They die uh, like human beings do. Um, and uh, when this human these human beings, the Numenorians started to figure that out, they got mad about it. And they're like, this, this is kind of a, a bad deal for us. Um, and they heard about this land where the elves all went and could live forever. And they were basically like, well, let's go do that. And we should go. And, and what they, they also knew that they were forbidden from doing that, um, that the, the angels and, and God had basically said they weren't allowed to do that. And so that is, so they, so they, they summoned the, the largest army, the largest Navy that the world had ever seen. And they were really strong, uh, even though they were, short-lived humans they uh they were very dangerous uh, and in the way to get to this to the undying lands where the elves were they were destroyed by by the angels um in in punishment uh, and they had their islands sunk and those who those who survived who who were considered the faithful ones were allowed to go and land in middle earth and they were the ones who founded the kingdom of Gondor and, and Arnor to the north, and which Aragorn is the descendant of, um, and uh, and so even there you have you have this the fall from grace, the temptation and the failure of of humankind, and these are the best people who are Middle Earth still, right? Like these are Aragorn is considered the model of virtue, and it was his people uh, that had fallen so so far. Um, there are other human beings that are not in the West, as it's called, that are. Um, not so good. They've been corrupted. Uh, there's also some problematic views of them uh, as sort of foreign to England, right? They're, they look kind of Middle Eastern um, and pre presented in that way, uh, which is a, you know an unfortunate product of, of Tolkien's time and education and place. Um, but there's definitely those racial undertones that like the, the men of the West are blonde haired and, and very white and blue eyed and such things. Uh, but even them are very are very fallible, and then the Shire folks though are very humble, right? Like the English, the English peasant folks, the normal, the, the regulars who you know fought and got drafted in wars, the the simple folks um, who uh, represented their own kind of allegorical purity.
Well, I think, you know, um, as you're talking about the remnant, I couldn't help but flash back to, to growing up as a, as a teenager with the Left Behind series. And while that's not um, a Catholic uh, worldview necessarily, this idea of like the faithful remnant that always perseveres, uh, that, you know, most people will fail, but there'll be the faithful remnant of the church is a very, very Catholic uh, idea and very, very uh, Christian theological concept. Like that there's always like some group that gets it right because it can't go completely wrong. Like there's going to be some group that somehow stays faithful in the midst of all this. Uh, and I mean, the other interesting thing about Numenor uh, is that the reason that all of this happens, that they, they were fairly content there, but then they come and are tempted by this bright shining figure who appears to be this great person and it's Sauron who has disguised himself to look like this wise creature uh, after, after having served for the, 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 the devil figure, Melkor of the, of the universe. Uh, and so he's Sauron, who's our, who's our main bad guy in the, in the whole series, is like the second in command for the devil, basically, in, in terms of comparable to Christian mythology. Uh, but he, he comes and does this work, and it's him that leads them astray, that says like, oh, hey, guys, like, they're, they're, they're doing this over here. Like, don't you want that? Like, why not? Um, why not you too? Um, you know, so very much like the tempter sort of figure from, from like Christian theology um, as well. I mean, and I think um, I, I, I cannot say that I'm versed with the, the end of the end of the world lore in Lord of the Rings, but like overall, there is like this idea that the elves and the gods, like the, the, the angel gods, not like the highest God, um, that they don't even know what's like, they know the humans die and they're just curious, like, what actually happens to them? They like think they go to be with the God figure, um, but they um, they don't they don't know what's going to happen. They're you know they're you're, they're curious. So you, you have these two differing narratives that like the um, the elves travel to the west and they get to live forever with the the angels people, but then the humans are going to die and no one knows what exactly is going to happen. And they're all very curious. Like it, it's a really interesting. Like for, for someone who is Catholic and very orthodoxly Catholic, this is a very uh, different way to conceive of the afterlife. You know, it's, it, it, was, it, was not, um, it was not quite the same. And I, I, you know, I think it relates to his, his passion for like thinking of a bigger picture that it's not just like one, one race doing things. Um, well, and you, you mentioned the, um, the people of the East and they're seen as being like the Melkor and Sauron worshippers. They're the ones who've always been corrupted, unlike the somewhat pure remnant of the Westerners uh, who are exemplified by the noble British hobbits smoking and drinking and not colonizing the entire earth at all. Um, they, um, you know, they, um, they have that, but then you also have the orcs, which in the wider mythology are corrupted elves. Um, and so you have this idea that like humanity, that else, that there is this, this natural corruption. Do you want to talk a little bit about like, um, about the, that, that sort of like the orcs as the corruption, uh, and you know, um, what, what if the orcs had one, I suppose would be another question. Like what, yeah. what is the world if the orcs are in charge? There's some really interesting writing, uh, about the morality of orcs. Um, and what what it is to be an orc and what orcs think and feel. Um, 
because so often they're basically portrayed as sort of these like mindless embodiments of evil and uh, and just terribleness. Um, uh, I mean, what Ember said about they were they're basically elves that were captured. Not not each one of them, but the elves were captured at some point by either Melkor or Sauron, and they were twisted and 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 tortured and uh, and turned into these uh, through various experiments into these sort of beings that were orcs and then they replicated them and and uh it's sort of this sad scary thing um but i but people have have looked at orcs and seen and tried to find like well what is it like what do orcs what are their organizing principles um you know what are they what do they believe in and there are some interesting lines just that people like look for in the lord of the rings where like orcs are talking amongst themselves very briefly about like well, this would be bad if this happened, or like this person doesn't know what they're doing, um, and and you can see little glimpses of, if not morality, at least some cognitive awareness of things could be better or worse. Um, that there are, you know, there's I think one conversation where like orcs are like, I don't really want to be involved in this fight. Like it doesn't really can't we just like go away and like leave this, not have to deal with all of this like battle between you know, with Sauron and versus the West, a sense of like, this isn't really my fight. I don't want to be part of it. Um, very small glimpses that like, maybe orcs aren't entirely corrupted themselves, that there is some, you know, as much as you could say humanity there um, for them, um, which I think is really interesting. There's also there's also a sense within Tolkien, and he talks about this separately from the books as well, that, that evil itself um, cannot create new things on its own, that it's not capable of creative uh, generative uh, work um, and that uh, it can only imitate or mock and twist. And so it's very intentional in this theology that like Satan, even in Christianity, doesn't have the ability to create human beings. He doesn't have the ability to make his own world because Satan isn't as strong as God, God themselves. Uh, all, all Satan can do is take what has been created and turn it, turn it bad. Um, and that's true also with um, with the Lord of the Rings world, where where evil is always there and it's incredibly powerful, but it is it's a way of not giving it that creative power that is reserved only for God, and that's a theology that we see popping up in Christianity all over the place, right? Like in in the in in sort of destructive ways, toxic ways, where where the church sees itself as the protector of of women's bodies around created, you know, giving birth, right? Like the only God has the ability to decide these things. And so, you know, we don't, we don't allow women to choose. We don't allow contraception. We don't, you know, that's, that's the purview of God alone. And anything, to, anything to mess with that is, is to try to play this God or take what, what God alone reserves is the power to do. So Tolkien plays around with that a little bit when he talks about, you know, orcs are not, were not created. They were, they were ultimately, still of of the the main god um and that is important um and that that the world is still controlled in some form by um you know by the divinities at at, at play so i suppose kind of as a, as a last question for for our portion so if you if you have questions get them ready post them in that chat we'll be we'll be getting ready to field them here in just a second you know, one of the one of the central themes. You know, we we talked about this fight against uh, against evil. That even if it feels like a losing fight, that we're still on the side of the good. You know, this is this is a myth very much about heroes. They may be very 
easily corruptible heroes. They may not be perfect heroes. They may have very huge flaws, but this is, this is a story about heroism and how we stand up in the face of, face of all the worst odds. Like it seems very likely that Sauron is going to win this all. Like what are the chances that, that one hobbit and his friend can make it all the way in and you know, later have the eagles rescue them? Um, that they can make it all the way in and defeat this. Like, it seems like such insurmountable odds that they're up against. Uh, and to, there's very much a theology of, of heroism that they are called to stand in courage against anything, anything that may come. Like, it, it doesn't matter as long as you're on that side of good, you need to be heroic and, um, and stand for that. Do you do you have any thoughts about like his theology of heroism before we start moving to to fielding some questions? Yeah, um, I think some of the best quotes from Lord of the Rings, which some of us know, are about that. I'll I'll share some of those just because I think that they uh, I don't know they're just great. Um, you know, there's this classic line that Fro when Frodo's talking to Gandalf, where Frodo says, "I wish he's talking about the this this uh, war and all the." trouble that is facing the world down. He says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf replies, so do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given us. Um, which I think is, is really true, right? That, that our job isn't to, isn't to necessarily win. It's not necessarily to have all the solutions, but it is to do what we can with what the time we have. There's a, there's a, I don't know, I don't think this is part of that same conversation, but there's another great line that speaks to that, which is, I think this is Gandalf speaking again. Um, he says, it is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the sucker of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, so those who live after us may have clean earth to till. What weather they shall have is not ours to rule. And so there's, there is an understanding here about what our role is in in our life in our time in our place that we are to do what is asked of us for good with the power that we have in the place and the people we are with but we should be under no illusion that we will be the ultimate deciders of that right we don't master the tides of the world um, what whether the future shall face is not ours to control or rule um, all we can do is what the time that we have in front of us, uh, what we can do. Um, and that's, a, and that's, I think there's something deeply reassuring about that. Um, and it limits us from spiraling into illusions of control and despair when we realize that we don't ultimately have control, um, which I think can happen to us. And so heroism then is to embrace that, is to know that that is the work. Um, it's not always glamorous work because if we equate glamor with victory, we're going to be in trouble. Um, you know, Theoden, before one of the big battles um, with the Rowan, he, here's another quote that I like. It's, he's right. He says, a time may come soon when none will return. Then there will be a need for valor without renown, for none shall remember the deeds that are done in the last defense of your homes. Yet the deeds will not be less valiant because they are, are, are unpraised. And I think that's really important, right? Because we don't fight, we don't fight for, for glory. We don't fight for victory. We fight because we care about the world, and we and we are we see ourselves as on the side of, of the just and the true, uh, and we don't do it because we believe that there is 
some ending that we are achieving. We do it because it's simply the right thing. And if we do the good because we expect some certain outcome, then we're really doing it in a transactional way, um, which is trying to barter with goodness or God or honor or whatever else it is. But we need to pursue it because it is just a virtuous thing. And so in creating a world where, where evil in some ways is bound to win in the end, Tolkien reminds us that that the work, whether you're Aragorn, whether you're Gandalf, and whether you're Frodo, your work is to do the do the task that's in front of you, um, do everything you can, do it with courage and honor, but recognize that you can't control the tides or the weather, and and there is something liberating in that. I think that those are some some vital lessons for this moment in history. Uh, I I know I definitely see that that quote um, about. I wish I did not have to live through this. Um, you know, that, see that one tossed around a lot. So those are vital lessons for us to, to hear and think about uh, in, in these challenging times that we face. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and end our recording. So any who are joining in the future on YouTube or Facebook video, uh, it was wonderful to have you join. Mm -hmm.